today at Reader's Corner, Gaia Vince, author of Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. Drought hit agricultural hubs. Coastlines diminishing every year. Wildfires and hurricanes leaving widening swaths of destruction. The culprit, most of us accept, is climate change. But not enough of us are confronting one of its biggest consequences, a total reshaping of the Earth's human geography. In her latest book, Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World, Gaia Vince points out early in Nomad Century, global migration has doubled in the past decade, on track to see literally billions displaced in the coming decades. What exactly is happening, and how will this great migration reshape us all? Gaia Vince is an environmental journalist, broadcaster, and nonfiction author. She writes for The Guardian and the BBC. She was previously news editor of Nature and online editor of New Scientist. She is also the author of Transcendence, Adventures in the Anthropocene. Gaia Vince, welcome to Reader's Corner. Hi, Bob. Great to, great to be talking to you. Well, you traveled far and wide to pull this book off, and I wonder if we could begin by you just telling us uh, the years and the places it took you uh, to put this book together. Yeah, well, um, it, it's been a, it's been quite a long process, actually, but um, probably most of the travel I did in, in a two-and-a-half-year stint, uh, mainly around the global south, uh, starting with Kathmandu in Nepal and then traveling through Asia um Australasia and then uh Africa and then South America all the way up through Central America to the United States so so that was kind of one one journey really that took uh, two and a half years that's an amazing feat you also have some personal and family experience here as I understand it uh your family were migrants that's right. Yeah. So um, they were actually refugees. So my um, my father and grandfather uh, left um, Hungary during uh, 1956 revolution. They smuggled themselves out uh, um, hidden inside the trunk of a car um, when the sort of totalitarian regime took over. Um, it's a bit bit of a similar situation to that Ukraine is facing um, from Russia. This was the uh, Russians coming into Hungary. Um, and then they were given refugee status um, and travelled across to Australia. Um, so that's where that's where they um, ended up. They were granted asylum. Um, then my father left in his 20s uh, to move to to the UK, to Britain, uh, which was I was born in Scotland. So <laughs> it's a kind of a, a global journey from my family. And, and many of us have similar similar stories to tell. I mean, I don't know anyone who lives in the same house uh, that they were born in, for example, uh, most of us have moved in our lives. It's completely normal. Uh, some of us have moved across the country. Some of us have moved across countries uh, and live across borders. But even if we don't travel or migrate ourselves, there are members of our family who have and people that we fall in love with and good friends and colleagues that come from other countries. It's it's what we do as humans. Well, it certainly is. And again, I uh, I go back a generation way before you but my grandmother and her sister boarded uh, a ship in Germany. They were from eastern Poland. 
all by themselves and came to Ellis Island, New York City, and she finally found her way to St. Louis, Missouri. When I think Yeah, I mean, about- the, the United States built on immigration. Yeah. So many countries, so many countries. I mean, all countries are to to uh, one extent, but, but the US really is a, a nation. You know, they've built all those states, built a United States all through this new society created by immigration. One of the things I liked about your book is that you take us back to help us understand that migration has gone on forever. And I wonder if you could just elaborate on that and also then uh, how you see it playing out in the future. Because I think most of us are so buried in the present. You know, I I, I can tell you the thousands of, of uh, migrants that are at the southern border of the United States right now, and that's where all the news and all the focus is. But what your book helps us understand is that there's a history to this migration that shows it's nothing new. And again, when it comes to the rest of the century, we're in for a big surprise. Please elaborate. Yeah. So, I mean, we are an an African ape, essentially. We emerged somewhere probably in East Africa between two and three hundred thousand years ago. Now we live everywhere on Earth. So we've colonized the whole planet. And we do that through our networks. So until relatively recently, just if you look at that two to three hundred thousand year history, just the last sort of 8,000 years is has been a time of relatively less migration. The rest of it, we, we were hunter-gatherers. We followed our food and uh, animals migrate. Um, we are an animal. We migrate. And we do so um, in this incredible way. We are super cooperators. We, we collaborate with each other. We're hyper-social. So we form these networks which have enabled us to leave areas that, that we know um, that have abundant food and, and move further in search of resources or adventure or whatever. And we're able to do that because we are able to use our networks to, to help us with, with survival in, in unfamiliar places where we also do something else. We, we, um, we have our secondary migrations, which is, which is very unusual. So we don't just migrate ourselves, but we migrate the stuff of the planet. So, um, it started with carrying pouches of water so that we could, we could roam much further away from water sources, but be sure that we had water with us. Um, we also uh, we take other things with us. We take the ability to make fire. We take our resources and we trade them with each other. And it's that incredible uh, networking uh, pattern and that those secondary migrations that really have allowed us to to colonize the whole planet from from the Arctic to the Saharan deserts to to really everywhere on Earth. So, yes, because our secondary migrations and our networks have become so successful, we have this idea that we are sedentary and we are relatively sedentary. You know, um, you live in Idaho. I I live in London. um, But I am surrounded by stuff that comes from elsewhere. You know, I had potato for lunch that comes from Chile or Peru. I have, um, you know, I'm I'm holding um, a pen in my hand with the plastic is manufactured from oil that came from, I don't know, the North Sea and the, the metal contingents come from somewhere in Africa. You know, 
all of these things that we surround ourselves with, all the uh, all the food that we eat, all the, the clothes that we wear, everything has migrated to us because of the migrating patterns of people and our as our resources and that allows us to feel sedentary but it's it there is this hidden migration around that we're reliant on everybody now in this globalized world it can be helpful to take a step back to look at the world to look at the planet from a perspective of far away and see it as this this geophysical sphere in space look at that and then look at this animal species this human species which is everywhere now what we are doing is heating the planet up and over the coming decades we're creating um a very different world a world where there will be parts of the globe which are hit so severely by extreme weather conditions because of the extra energy we're putting into this um this weather system that there are swathes, especially around the tropics, around coastlines, around river systems, places where most of our major cities are, which will increasingly become unlivable for at least part of the year. And that means if you were to look at that globe, that spinning orb in space, and to look at that animal species and think, where can that be on the planet? There are large areas where it cannot be and large areas further north away from the equator especially where there are there is relative safety and so if we look at that it's very simple isn't it the world's getting hot the world is becoming unlivable in certain places let's just move the people if only it was that simple you know what we've done over the relatively recent past just the last uh, last couple of centuries really is create these these hindrances to that movement so although we now have inevitable climate migration, it's already started and will get a lot worse. We are creating barriers everywhere, these borders that are preventing people from moving to safety. And everywhere people move, they create these new societies, these more productive societies. And we just said that America is built on immigration. Well, every single city is built on immigration. They are these hubs of creativity, of economic productivity they're exciting places to be and that is because of this this great confluence of people from all sorts of other places now the challenge and the challenge that i bring to nomad century is to make this work because we're talking about tens of millions of people moving from the tropics to northern parts of our planet possibly hundreds of millions of people, perhaps even one and a half billion people by 2050. Depends on the temperature of the planet, depends on adaptation. Now, that's a huge challenge. I'm Bob Custer, a host of Reader's Corner. Today, I'm speaking with Gaia Vince, author of Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World. The book investigates a coming environmental migration, the seismic consequence of our climate crisis that will force us to change where and how we live. One of the lines that really stuck with me after reading your book uh, was one that uh, said, Alaska, by 2047, now 2047, I'm sorry, is not that far away, could be experiencing average monthly temperatures similar to Florida today. And that brings me to what you call the the cities of the new north. And I wonder if you could just give us... Uh, a few examples of that landscape. Uh, certainly, uh, you mentioned Canada and Russia as two examples. 
uh, help us understand what those countries are going to look like, uh, what life will be like in those countries as uh, this century unfolds. So this is a century of upheaval. Um, and it means change, everything change. When the climate changes, everything changes because the climate is the backdrop. It's the fabric on which we build our lives. And if you look at the last year or two, I mean, in the US, you've experienced fires all across the West Coast, um, terrible drought with thousands of cattle dying, huge uh, storms sweeping away people um, on the East Coast, you know, Puerto Rico without power for months really quite horrific uh, scenes where where people have been displaced. Now, that's at 1.2, 1.3 degrees above the pre-industrial average. As we move through the century, um, we're talking about 2047 here, 2050. You know, that's the same time that has elapsed since um, The Bodyguard with Whitney Houston, that movie. You know, yeah, that's that's right. about the same distance away. Yeah. It's not that long. It's not that long. And we are expecting to see these conditions, but so much more. So um, the severity will increase, but also the frequency. And we will have multiple things. So we'll have drought followed by floods, followed by fire. And, and these things will erupt sort of one after the other consecutively. So you don't have time to recover between events. And that will make um, large swathes of certainly the lower states pretty, uh, pretty impossible to live with. Alaska and um, the higher latitudes are experiencing some of the greatest increases in temperature anywhere on the planet. Uh, the warming there is, is very pronounced, but it's going from unlivably cold temperatures to slightly more habitable temperatures. So what's happening there is we're getting longer growing seasons. We're getting um, crops that weren't able to grow before. You know, Greenland is now planting a range of different vegetables, which was completely impossible even five years ago, 10 years ago. So um, we're seeing sort of more habitable, more pleasant conditions there. I mean, it does everywhere will be affected. So we're also seeing, um, you know, Canada experienced temperatures above 50 degrees um, Celsius last year. Uh, you know, they are getting extreme temperatures as well. And we're getting melting permafrost. But these places are relatively richer, they're wealthier, they have generally better institutions, um, certainly in Canada and Northern Europe and Alaska. So they are able to adapt in a way that places further south either are very poor or the conditions are too extreme for people to adapt. They will just have to move. So what we're going to see is um, cities that are already there, like, say, Churchill, Manitoba um, in Canada, expand. We're going to see vast expansion of existing cities, but we're also going to see the emergence of completely new cities built from the ground by immigrants, just as uh, cities in the United States were built from the ground by immigrants. Same for Australia. Mm -hmm. So we're going, we're going to be seeing that over the coming decades. Um, and these cities will have to be zero carbon, sustainable. They will have to be able to provide their own energy, water supply. Water is much more available there um, than it will be further south. Uh, also their own energy, their own food. And food is going to be a big challenge because a lot of the uh, agriculture of the globe at the moment is produced in some of these areas that are most hit. 
Mm-hmm. And the Asian breadbasket, for example, is going to be terribly hit. So we're going to have to look at um, completely remaking our food production system, which is which is broken at the moment. We're looking to mainly plant-based diets, not entirely, but mainly because cutting down rainforests to grow crops to feed cattle is an incredibly inefficient way of feeding humans. Um, It's very inefficient in terms of calories and in terms of nutrition, in terms of protein, everything. So we will be moving to more plant-based diets um, and also novel proteins. So um, we'll be looking at things like insect production, which can be done anywhere. And uh, foods will be produced uh, using insect protein and algae and bacteria and so on. I think you point out in your book that uh, Canada has a much different political climate than ours in the United States. Canada, it seems, they have a, a history of migration, bringing peoples from all over the world into their country. And um, it suggests to me that um, there's some work that has to be done in some other countries, namely the United States before we see the kind of uh, approaches in public policy that Canada has. Yeah, that's that's very true. So so Canada has a plan to treble its population over the coming decades. And that's something um, that the majority of people all accept and are all behind. They're growing a, a bigger nation, a bigger population, um, more productive cities. And there are plenty of new industries coming with the new drive for sustainability and zero carbon and um, everything from the biotech industry to sustainable construction. It's it's a, a huge, uh, a huge job opportunity. So we can all learn from from the from the approach that Canada has taken. So so many, many countries at the moment um, are going through an unfortunate kind of nationalistic leadership. We've seen this um, very toxic narrative building, um, this anti-immigration narrative, which hasn't actually been countered, I don't think, sufficiently by centrist and, and left-wing parties. And it's not only very damaging to social cohesion, um, and and often racist. It's also economically foolish and based on nonsense. I mean, so I mean, it it is the, the most the most obvious tool for a populist leader to take is to demonise migrants or demonise poor people. I mean, it's 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 an absolute classic trope. But we need to challenge that. We need to challenge that everywhere. If you look at the many many studies that are out now. We can challenge that with facts. So, for example, immigration doesn't lower um, lower wages. In fact, the opposite is true. It doesn't uh, reduce uh, employment opportunities for, for native people. The opposite is true. Um, it doesn't raise the crime rate. The opposite is true. I mean, we we have so much data now that that we can easily counter this, but it takes investment. And to make migration work, to make it the economically beneficial tool that it can be in terms of building more productive, cohesive societies, we actually need to invest. Um, it's It's crucial that we put in place the policies to make this work, to properly manage it. And that's what I really call for in Nomad Century. We are going to have enormous amounts of climate 
migration coming. At the moment, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of the the trickles of migrants that are coming. We're going to see a lot more. We need to manage that and we need to manage it globally. Migration is not a security issue. It is an economic issue, also a humanitarian issue. You know, people are moving for work and they are moving to where the work is and where the work is, is, you know, by definition, where where they need workers. These workers increase the economy. The the economy is not a zero-sum game. They don't take the X number of jobs and then there's no jobs for natives. They add job opportunities. They add wealth. You know, some economists reckon that if we took all borders away from the world, the uh, global GDP would uh, immediately bounce by uh, tens of trillions of dollars. I mean, it would be a hugely productive thing to do. But, you know, I don't think that's going to happen, certainly not straight away. But what we do need to do is manage migration. And that means investment. So first of all, we need to invest in places where um, immigration is happening. We need to. These are cities. They're always cities. So we need to invest in the infrastructure, the housing, access to healthcare and schools, all of those things so that they don't strain uh, resources that are there at the moment. And. The problem is for many governments, those those public services are already inadequate for the native people. That's that's poor policy. Right. That's not to do with immigration. That is poor policy. You know, you need to sort out the sort out the policies so that so that people do have adequate provision. There should be adequate housing. There should be um, timely access to good quality health care and education for everybody. Um, you know, especially in a rich country. But the other thing you need to invest in is socially. You need to invest socially. It's not just financial. You need to invest socially in inclusive policies. So you need to make sure that the anti-immigrant tropes are countered. You need to make sure that education is there right from the beginning, that that you develop this idea of a nation which is multicultural, that everybody can be and feel a properly included citizen with agency so that everybody's values and needs are aligned. They all want to live in a productive, clean, healthy, sustainable city. And everyone is working together to create that. And you don't have marginalised communities that are not properly American or don't feel included in society, don't feel like American citizens. You know, everybody has to feel included and genuinely be included in this project to become part of this greater nation. And all of this investment will be multiply repaid. I mean, all the studies show you invest now, it will you will be repaid in taxes, in um, productivity. I mean, almost every country in the global north, the developed nations are suffering this huge demographic crisis where people are just not having enough babies to support an elderly population. So um, this aging population, you know, when when we are helpless in our beds and we need care workers, if we don't have that larger society of young mobile workforce as citizens, we're going to be in trouble. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Gaia Vince, the author of Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World. Well, I heard you say something about migrants will go where the work is, and uh, that obviously will oftentimes be in the cities. But um, from my own personal experience in the Midwest and now in 
in Idaho. I remember when I was in Illinois, I campaigned in the 1990s for three different statewide offices, and uh, I had to travel the length and breadth of that state. And I would move into these little towns and talk to people. And this, this happens in Idaho as well. I think it happens in a lot of states. And they all complain about the fact that our young people have left. Our young people have left, and they carried on most of the service jobs in the community. And now that they're gone, they don't have somebody to clean the motel rooms if there's a motel at the end of the town or whatever it might be. And I guess what surprises me about the United States anyway uh, is that, and I think at one point you mentioned this in your book, not about the U.S., but just generally, seems like there should be some kind of a national dispersal policy of some kind that's coordinating with those folks who are at the border trying to figure out where to send these thousands of migrants. Uh, yeah, Bob, we need to go them. further. We need to go further than that. It shouldn't just be national, but of course it needs to be national. But this is a huge problem. You know, at the moment, we're treating migration as this security issue. So we're just putting up walls, putting up borders, trying to deflect people. It's crazy. People are coming anyway. So, you know, right. we need to manage this in a much more sensible way. I mean, I think it needs to be managed globally. I think we need a new international body of global migration which has teeth and we have something in name only it's it's not it's not adequate which is able to coordinate the movement of people you know to jobs and to new cities that are being built and also the finances for this from origin and host countries to to make this work because this is going to be I can't stress this enough. You know, we're seeing just the beginning of something which is going to be possibly hundreds of millions of people displaced and seeking safe places for their families. Um, but but of course, we also need it nationally. You know, it's crazy that people, you know, have to wait ages for a dentist or um, for help um, for nurses or for kindergartens or they can't get their lawn mowed or all sorts of, you know, there are no truck drivers, all of this. Meanwhile, people who are desperate and willing to do those jobs from all around the world are languishing in detention facilities, which is inhumane and also against human rights. It's completely crazy. They need to get on with their lives, you know, and they are the future teacher of your children, the nurse that will look after you. I mean, the bus driver, these are these are people who could be working and could be taking part in society. It just needs coordination and management. We've made this so hard. If you think about how um, goods and money and um, other resources are moved across borders, we try and make that as simple as possible. But when it comes to our biggest economic resource, which is human labor, we make it really hard um, to the detriment of all of our of all of our economies and our societies. You know, we fracture families. It, it's it's really crazy. You know, you're, you mentioned in your book that there are states and communities that have really, right now, forget what's going to happen in the future, they have managed climate change in very radical fashion, and Indonesia comes to mind. I wonder if you could share with our listeners just how they decided to deal with uh, this climate change. And also, I think it's Kiribati, if I pronounce that correctly, that has a rather unique approach to dealing yeah so so um indonesia which is a huge huge country the capital jakarta is sinking 
basically under rising sea levels um, and is inundated continually. So they have decided to move their capital um, to a completely different island, uh, which they which they are building and a huge new capital, and they've decided to completely relocate and this is going to be normal people will be relocating towns cities you know is how for how long is miami stay sustainable new orleans um many of these places but then there are other island states like kiribati um in pacific atoll basically it's just um a coral reef low-lying coral reef rings of islands uh the maldives tuvalu these places which are entire nations that are disappearing under the waves um the they they're all having to come up with various strategies for adaptations to survive climate change over the coming decades so kiribati's leader is basically relocating the population through education he's um training young citizens are being trained in jobs um for jobs that exist in other nations like new zealand or australia or, or elsewhere so um, doing nursing fellowships and things like that so that they can move. Um, and he's basically gradually reducing the population through emigration. Um, and this is going to happen increasingly in places like Bangladesh, in places that are continually inundated or just can't survive um, the extreme conditions that are happening over the coming decades. Um, it's far better to do it in a managed way through planning, um, and gradually, rather than have, you know, these extreme acute um, emergencies, um, as happens quite often to hurricane hit places in the Caribbean, for example, where there's no choice, people have to be evacuated, and huge numbers of lives are lost, and it's all an emergency, and nobody has any agency or choice on where they go and how they go. And um, it, it's much more distressing for everybody and much more expensive that way. It's much better to plan how we're going to deal with this as a global society of humans on this one shared habitable planet. You know, where are we going to move and how are we going to make this work? Because we can change our social systems to a certain extent much faster than we can change Earth systems. Well, you've given us uh, much to think about and, and much to act on, Gaia. Uh, and I must say that we barely touched some very important chapters of your book where you delve into the proof of just how radically transformed our climate is today and where it's headed in the next few years. Uh, I'm going to leave it to our listeners to figure that one out because the whole point of this show is to encourage listeners uh, to buy books and to buy books that are so relevant to what's going on today in our country and in uh, across the globe. Uh, Gaia Vince, thanks for joining us today at Reader's Corner, and thank you for the book, Nomad Century, How Climate Migration Will Reshape Our World. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bob. It's been such a pleasure. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. 